Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. We're in a series that I'm calling The Optimism Factor, and we're talking about optimism and the importance of going through life learning instead of zeroing in on the air that's in your glass. And I, I'm sorry I didn't bring my prop this week, uh, my, my glass of water here, but just imagine there's a glass of water on the table there in, in front of me about focusing on the, the, instead of the air that's in the glass, but focusing on what is in the glass, the the, the, the water. You can determine whether someone's basically optimistic or pessimistic by whether they complain about what's missing or if they're excited about what is there. The truth of the matter is for most of us, it's not like we have this, this glass that's always right in the middle, you know, always half full and half empty. We go through times in our life where the glass seems to be overflowing, and we also goes through, we go through times in life when it seems like, oh yeah, I can see a couple drops in there, don't we? But in each and every situation, you and I have a choice to make. Are we going to look at what's missing, or are we going to look at what we have, what God has blessed us with? As we're going through this series, we're trying in a very realistic way to explain what it means to have a faith-based, optimistic look at life. Today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, and then as soon as we read it, you're going to see why this is titled, The High Cost of Grumbling. We're going to look at this verse, and then we're going to step back, and we're going to take the context of the passage there in 1 Corinthians 10, so that we can understand how these verses fit with that, that verse, but then also we're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, and we're going to look at it and see what the real context was behind what Paul was writing. We're going to look at the story to, to see what the folks did back then and what we should avoid now. So let's begin with a, with a tough verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 10. I've got it highlighted there on your life notes. Why don't you read it with me? It's a little command here. It says, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, wow, isn't that a happy verse? How many of you had kids? Don't you wish you had this, this verse when your kids were grumbling, when they were complaining? You could say, hey, go read 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. You could put, post it on the, door, on the door to their room. The truth is we all kind of grumble at times, don't we? Even when we're older, if we're honest. But what is the point at which grumbling becomes a really big issue? Where do we find ourselves at odds with God? And what is the point at which grumbling is just kind of the, the natural expression that life isn't really going all that well. Well, that's what we're going to explore today. But to help us understand what's going on here, we need to step back and see the larger context of what the Apostle Paul is writing when he writes this verse to the church at Corinth. So we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. He's writing to the Corinthians, and they've become a bunch of arrogant Christians. And just call it out like it is. They started out very well. And some neat things happened, but it went to their head. They became very prideful about their spirituality. Have you ever known someone who's, whose life was a mess, but 
they still thought that they were better than, than everybody else? Well, spiritually, that's how the Corinthians were. And the Apostle Paul is trying to set them straight in a pastoral and, and in, a, in a fatherly way here. And in this section, he's reminding them that a good spiritual start is no guarantee to a great spiritual ending. And for them to see that, he goes back to the Old Testament, the children of Israel, their spiritual forefathers and foremothers, and he says, take a look at their life and what happened to them back in the days of Moses. So we pick it up here in, in chapter 10, and it starts at verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Now you may be saying, well, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, here's what he's referring to. When the children of Israel left Egypt and started towards the promised land, as they went through the desert, God showed up in a physical manifestation during the day as a cloud, which gave them covering, and as a pillar of fire at night. And when they wanted to know, when, when do we move? When do we, when do we stop? Do we go to the right or do we go to the left? You know, they had no GPS or, or MapQuest in those days. So the cloud would move when it was time to move, and when it would stop, they'd know the Lord wanted them to stop, and they would set up camp until the cloud moved again. And so he's making reference here, Paul is, to the entire nation of Israel who came out of Egypt. All of them who came out of Egypt, they saw this going on. They saw the, the, the cloud, they saw the pillar of fire, and, and they all got to the Red Sea, and then they passed through the Red Sea. You know the story. They got out and the Lord led them to the sea with Egypt behind them, chasing them down because Pharaoh said, wait a minute, that was dumb of me to let all my slave labor go. And so he gathers all of his chariots and he's, he's following them. And, and God had led them through the cloud to the edge of the sea. It's kind of like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. This is, a, this is a trap. They're trapped there. And so they all panicked. And they said, oh, you brought us out here to kill us. And they were, they were bellyaching. They were griping. They were complaining. And the Lord says, no, no. And he tells Moses to stretch out his staff over the water and the Red Sea parted and they all got to the other side. The Egyptians chased them and they were all wiped out. It was God's way of destroying the enemy army and showing them that they could trust him, showing them that, that, that he would take care of them as they closed it in on the, on the army of Egypt. And that's what Paul is saying here, that they all experienced that. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that'd be a pretty cool God experience in my life. Have you ever said to God, Lord, if you would just, if you would just do this, if, if, you would, if you'd just do that, then, then I'd believe a little bit more? Well, Paul goes on in verse 2. He says, They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, here's what he's referring to, the spiritual food that they partook of in the, in the drink. He's talking about manna, the manna that came down each and every day, uh, except for Friday when they were given two days' worth. They were given manna to eat. He's also referring to periods where for two or three days they went without water. They, they didn't have water. And you've got to remember, this is, a, this is between one and a half and two million, it's, it's guesstimated, people that, that Moses is leading. And imagine those people without water for two or three days. Now, one time Moses struck the rock at God's, uh, at God's direction, and, and a spring broke, for, broke forth out of it. But another time he was supposed to speak to the rock, and instead he hid it, and we'll find out why in a moment, and the spring still broke forth, and they had their water they needed. And, and Paul says, and that rock was Christ. Because G 
Jesus described himself as living water, the one whom, if they drank of him, would never be thirsty again. The rocks were spiritual symbols of the Christ that was to come. Now, as I told you, the first time Moses hit the rock, he did so because God, God told him to. And that rock represented Christ, the one who would, who would give us living water, represented Christ being struck or, or dying for our sins. But the next time Jesus comes, he comes in glory, not in judgment and not to be punished for our sins. The second time Moses was supposed to speak to the rock. That's what God told him to do. But he got ticked off at the people who were complaining and bellyaching, and he struck it the same way as before. Yes, Moses got angry. That was the last straw. And when he struck it, he disobeyed God. And he basically messed up this whole metaphor and symbolism that God was trying to show them. And the Lord said to Moses, that's it, Moses. I'm going to take you and you're going to get to see the promised land, but you're not going to get to actually enter into it yourself. And again, if you and I had experienced anything like all these things, don't you think that, that we would be like just trusting God all the time? Notice verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. And even if you know the story, you know that's literally what happened. They wandered around for 40 years until every one of them, except for a couple of exceptions we'll get to in a few moments, every one of them that had left Egypt died and their children went to the promised land. Now here's an important verse, verse 6. Now these things occurred as what? As what? Examples. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. But you might want to go home and, and underline, circle in the, this verse in, in your Bible. These things were written as examples. They're not just stories. They're examples for whom? For us. Paul's not just talking about the Corinthians. He's not just talking about himself. He's talking about Christians down through the ages. These things are written as examples for us. They're not just stories. There's a lot of things in the Bible that, that raise questions, you know, like, you know, where did Cain get his wife? But you can, you can be sure that God puts the stuff in there that we need to understand. God doesn't answer all the questions that we, that, we could, that we could dream up. But he surely tells us what is important. And when, when, when God inspires one of the writers of Scripture to say these are examples, we need to sit up and we need to pay attention to those examples. Well, what did they do that, that caused them to be scattered? You see, despite the great start, they did four things that Paul warned the Corinthians and Paul warns us about. Continues in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So Paul here in rapid succession, he gives three different things. And he says, don't do this, folks. You know, don't do this. They indulge in, in, in idol worship, pagan revelry and sexual morality. And, 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 and they tested the Lord's patience. They pushed him. And then we come to this verse I already pointed out in verse 10, the fourth one. And do not grumble as some of them did. And they were killed by the destroying angel. He continues in verse 11. These things happened to them as, here's that word again, as what? Examples. And were written down as warnings for whom? For us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages was to come. The fulfillment of the ages? That's Jesus. We're in the Advent season here, leading up to when we celebrate Christmas in, in a week and a half. 
The fulfillment of the ages is Jesus. We live in the age after Jesus has come, and he's saying there are warnings for us. These things that happened so many thousands of years ago are still warnings to us and for us. These things happened so that we will be warned that this is how God is, this is how we are, and this is what happens when we respond in that way. The second thing I want you to see, it's on your life notes there, is don't grumble as some of them did and were killed. So the message is clear. There is a high cost to grumbling. And the question is begged, well, how did they grumble, Walt? Well, what was the thing that caused them to step over the line and to go from being upset or, or being hurting to, to grumbling to the point to where God said, that's it, you're not going to go into my promised land? Because I don't know about you, but, but whatever it is they did, I don't want to do it. So the best thing for us to do is to go back to the Old Testament story that he's referring to, and it's found in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. We don't have time for the whole story. You can read it this week. It's just two chapters, but we're going to do a flyby. We're kind of going to, going to buzz down and touch certain high points. And as we do, I want you to grasp the history. I want you to, to see what's going on so that we can understand how they grumbled and what that means for us. And afterwards, I'm going to make some distinctions for you so that we don't cross that line. I think we all know the story before the story. I just told you part of it. The Israelites were slaves. They cried out to God, get us out of slavery. Give us the promised land that you promised to Father Abraham. And God wanted to do this, so God sent Moses to them. Moses was sent by God. Moses didn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'll go back to Egypt. He didn't want to go back to Egypt. If you go back to the burning bush, Moses had all kinds of reasons why he didn't think he was capable of doing it. But Moses was God's leader that God sent to do what God wanted him to do. And so God said, Moses, you're going to show up. You're going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. But I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to let them go. And so you're going to go through a series of, of plagues, and you're going to go through a series of, of tough times. And here's what God was doing. God was trying to do two things. The first is he was going to toughen them up. He was toughening up the children of Israel so they would be ready to be on their own, to be back in the promised land. It's kind of like a, a coach sending the players through hell week for, for a football team. You know, you get ready for a season of football, and you've got this time, intense time of practices. Some call it hell weeks. With the high school I went to, we called it, we called it two-a-days, where you spend the entire day, you get a rest in the middle of it, but you're just working your tail off trying to get ready for the season. And, and that conditioning during the season is very important to how you're going to make it during the season. If you cheat during that time, you're not going to make it through the season. You're not going to make it in the, in the games. And then the other thing he's trying to do here is he's setting them up materially. Because after all these plagues happened and the, and the Egyptians wanted nothing more than to see the Israelites gone, Moses instructed them to ask the Egyptians to give them their silver, their gold, their livestock, their, their clothing, etc. And so basically they did that. They gave the Israelites everything that wasn't tied down. They gave them their, their livestock. They gave them their, their clothing, their gold. They gave them their ATM cards, the pins along with them and all that stuff so that the... Uh, the Israelites basically pillaged them as they were on their way out the door. But first, God was going to send them through some difficulty, just like those hard practices before the season. So Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, no way. These guys have too much time in their hands. You know, he was a little bit obstinate there. God made him obstinate. So he said, you got, you got too much. You know what? You still got to make the same quota of bricks, but you aren't going to get straw. That's not, you're going to straw. You're going to have to gather the straw on your own. We're not going to provide it for you. And so the supervisors get beaten, the supervisors in turn then beat the, beat the Jews, and they all cried out to God and said, what are you doing to us? 
This leader that you sent to us, God, we hate Moses. We don't like this. We don't like what he's caused for us. And that was one of the first major gripes. They were griping against Moses, but ultimately they were griping against God. They challenged the leadership that God had provided for them. Then they came to the Red Sea, where again they challenged what Moses at God's direction was leading them to do. Why would you bring us out here? Weren't there graves in Egypt? We could have been buried back there. Why would you bring us out here to die? And then, as I said, they went uh, without water for three days. And again, they cried out and said, why would you bring us out here again to die? God's been doing all this stuff. He gave them the cloud. He gave them the pillar of, of fire. He parted the Red Sea. And instead of seeing all the things that God had done in the past, all they ever saw was the problem in the present. The truth is, we can be like that, can't we? I know I can. It's as if they assumed that, that God did all these wonderful things and, and, he, and he used up his quota of, of God power and, and he'd be out of power to be able to continue to deliver him. Well, this happens for about a year and you'll see why I call this how to turn a rough year into a miserable life. Someone came up to me before the service and said, boy, this is going to be a happy sermon today, isn't it? Because God's plan was to send them through a very rough year to, to toughen them up and teach them to depend upon him and take them to the edge of the promised land and then lead them into the promised land. That was God's intent. That was God's purpose. But here's what happens. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. He said, send them to explore. You're going to see in a minute, they didn't necessarily do exactly what he said. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up to the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. You see, they had no, no Google Maps. They had no Google you know, no satellite pictures, no National Geographic, no travel channel. They really didn't know what to ex expect except for stories that had been passed down over the last 400 years from their, for from their forefathers. So, so God had them send these spies in to come back and tell them what it was like. But unfortunately, the spies went with a different mindset. They went in with the mindset of, well, we're going to determine whether or not we can take this land. You see the difference there? They came back, they said, the cities are fortified. The people are huge. But the response should have been great. God's helped us in the past. God's going to deliver us in the future. But instead, they went in, instead of seeing all that God had done in the past and the water that was in their cup, they saw the problems before them. And we pick it up in verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported them to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And they showed them this great fruit. And then one of the saddest words in the spiritual vocabulary, that little three-letter word, but. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. These are the descendants of the giants that they remember back from, from in Genesis. 
The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And they don't say it, but I'm sure there were termites there too. Two of the twelve spies that went out disagreed with the other ten. Caleb and Joshua said it's tough, but God's with us. We see in verse 30, it says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. His faith was in God, not, the, not looking at the problem. He was looking at, at what God had done in the past. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. These are the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim that we're told. It's, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Then jumping down to chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader. What's that saying? We're going to reject the leader that God gave us. We're going to choose our own leader and go back to Egypt. They'd seen the plagues. They'd seen the Red Sea parting. They'd seen the, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They had a history of God coming through now. And now they're worried about some big people in walled cities. Why in the world would you want to go back to Egypt? For the same reason that we fall into the trap. Because the past was yesterday, and tomorrow's problem is before us. And they zeroed in on that problem. They put all their focus on the problem None of their focus on the God who time and time and time again had delivered them. To be sure, it was a real problem. There were fortified cities with armies. It was even a real problem when they didn't have water for a few days. But even then, God had come through for them. So it's not as if they didn't have something of concern, but it's what they zeroed in on. It's what they focused on that caused them to grumble. And the end result of this, I have it in your life notes there, is they forgot God's blessing. They forgot God's blessing. They called God a liar. They criticized the leaders that God had provided for them. And they're whining about everything. And a very tough year became a miserable life because God shows up and he says to Moses, you know what, Moses? He probably called him Mo. You know what, Mo? Step back. I'm going to kill all these guys. I'm going to start a new nation out of you. You're, you know, you're going to get Abraham's promises. You're, you're a grandson of, of Abe, so we're just step away. And Moses says, whoa, Lord, wait. And I love the way that, that Moses is able to talk to God. He says, Lord, if you do this, the Egyptians will think that you were unable to deliver your people. So you don't want to do that. And the surprising thing, God listens to him. In verse 20, the Lord replied, okay, Mo, have it your way. I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory 
the miraculous signs. In other words, they should have known better. They saw this. Not one of these guys saw these signs that I performed in Egypt in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me not once, but ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has tested me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. And he continues in verse 30, Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I the Lord have spoken. And I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. And so they marched around the desert in circles for 40 years until every male adult of that generation had died. Instead of going into the land flowing with milk, and honey, and all God's other blessings. These things were written as what? Examples, as warnings. For the people back then, not just for them, but for us. This isn't just about them, it's about us. There's principles here that we can apply. So we've seen, kind of seen what they did, and I want to take time and, and flush this out a little bit more by making some distinctions for you and me, as I said earlier, so that we don't go overboard. I've given you in your life notes three statements that I'm calling important distinctions in this passage and the rest of Scripture. The first is it's okay to complain to God. It's not okay to complain about God. People ask me all the time, you know, well, what do we do with bad things? Are we supposed to pretend and, and live in happy land? What do we do when things are really bad? And the answer is God's not upset when you complain. God is upset when you complain about Him, when you question his motives, when you impugn his righteousness. Did you catch that in the story? They said, why did the Lord lead us out here to die? As if it's the Lord's intent. Now, the truth be told, God is sovereign. If God chose to do that, God could do that, right? But they're questioning him. Their griping wasn't about the tough things to God. Their griping was about God and saying that God is untrustworthy. And that's the line that they crossed. You don't want to step over that line in your frustration of where you accuse God of wrongdoing. Let me show you this distinction between complaining to God and complaining about God from the life of Job. I won't tell you the whole story because it's so well known in our, in our culture. and it is a, I love reading. I've, I don't know how many times, dozens of times I've read through the story of Job. Job's a, a great story. It's a, it's a great, great thing to read. It starts out in chapter 1 and Job is kind of God's main man, so to say. Satan visits heaven, and that's something you kind of I've always wondered about, but God chose not to tell us what's going on there. But anyway, Satan comes to God in heaven. God asks him, what have you been doing? He goes, well, I've been going to and fro around the earth. And God says, hey, you see my boy Job? Look at him. Look, at, look how righteous he is. Man, I love him. I, he's constant. I can count on Job as, as long as the day. And Satan says, yeah, only because you're blessing, only because you give him stuff. 
You take that stuff away from him, he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, you're on. But there's certain boundaries here. You can't touch his flesh. You can't touch his flesh. So in the first chapter of Job, Job loses all, all of his kids die. And he loses all of his livestock, all of his material possessions. And they're, they're taken away. And it tells us in verse 20 of Job chapter 1, it says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. I encourage you to look it up later. He fell to the ground in worship and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This guy had just lost. He'd gone bankrupt. And in addition to that, all of his children were dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And what does he say? May the name of the Lord be praised. And it says in verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Okay, so what would have been the sin? Well, this, Job didn't sin by what? By charging God with wrongdoing. It's okay to, to ask God questions. It's okay to say, God, I don't understand what's going on. But it's, it's not okay to complain about God, to impugn God's righteousness. And so in chapter 2, Satan comes back and, and, and he says, well, I do. He said, and God said, yeah, but you see, he's still, he's still upright. He's still okay. And, and Satan, yeah, yeah, but if, if you let me touch his skin, if you let me touch his body, then we'll see how much he, how, how loyal he is to you. So God said, okay. And so Job is afflicted with these boils, these sores all over his body. And the picture is given of, uh, there of, of Job is sitting on, on, the, on the garbage dump, on the ash heap, it says. And, and he's hurting so bad. And if you've ever had, had something with your skin, you may know what I'm talking about. He's hurting so bad that he, that he, that he takes shards of pottery and scratches and scratches his sores. You know, my, my brother, my middle brother growing up, he had these, this skin condition on his feet. And he would actually take a knife and he would scrape the bottom of his feet to, to relieve the pain of, of, the, of the sores on, on, on his feet. And so that's what Job is saying. He's on the ash heap. And his wife comes to him and she says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And that's what his, his wife's given up. She says, just curse the Lord and die. And he replies to her, he says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, it says, Job did not sin in what he said. You see, the lion is not being unhappy. The lion is not hurting. The lion is not complaining or even being in pain. The lion is stepping over and accusing God. The lion is losing that last little bit of faith and hope and trust. And instead of trusting God, thinking God is bad, thinking that God deceived you, that he's, that he's brought you to this place to hurt you. I'm not saying that you live in happy land. I'm not saying that you don't experience pain. I'm, I'm saying that you and I learn to take our gripes to God, but not make our gripes about God. Because when we make our gripes about God, we set ourselves up to be in the same place where the Israelites were, where they say, oh, we're all going to die here. And God says, well, you know what? Have it your way. Yeah, you'll die here. It's okay to complain to God. It's not okay to complain about God. Another distinction in your notes. It's okay to be hating life. It's not okay to bail on God. And this goes back to that situation where you say, oh man, I'm hurting. Fine, hurt. But don't step over the line where you say, well, God hasn't come through on me, so I can't trust him. I'm going to start controlling my own life. I'm going to start running my own life. I'm going to give up on God. Back in Job in, in chapter 10, see if you don't agree with me. This is what I would really call hating life in Job chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. 
Job says to God, he says, why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I'd died before any eyes saw me. If only I'd never come into being or have been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Wouldn't you call that hating life? And Job's not the only one like that that we have that, that, that example of in the Bible. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 20, verses 14 and 15, I neglected to write that on your life, or type that in your life, so you might want to write down Jeremiah 20, verses 14 and 15. Jeremiah says, he says, Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you today, a son. Jeremiah wasn't very happy that day. And some of us will experience incredible pain. Some of us will experience not a rough year leading into a miserable life, but a rough decade. And in that pain, it's okay to complain to God. That's fine. In that pain, you might even find yourself literally hating life, saying, Lord, I wish you'd take me. I wish I'd never been born. But what you don't want to do is step over that line where you say, I'm hating life, so therefore I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to forget God. That's bailing on God. You don't want to accuse God of wrongdoing, and you don't want to bail on God. In Job chapter 13, Job basically is, is saying that you know, he's going to continue to trust. He says, I have nowhere else to go. I don't like what's been going on. I wish I hadn't been born. But then in verse 15 of chapter 13, he says, Though he slay me, yet my hope will be in him. Even if God kills me, I'm still going to hope in him. I'm not going to give up on God. He's, he's, I'm going to see that little drop of water that's down there in the corner of the glass. I'm going to zero in on that little drop. I'd love it if the glass was half full. Heck, I'd, just, I'd take it if it was a quarter full. But I'm not going to accuse God for the missing half. I'm not going to give up on God. Now, the last distinction I have for you, as I look through Israel's response and Job's response and other things, is this. Negativity is a choice. We can choose what we focus on. By the way, the Bible never tells you how to feel. The Bible shows people feeling the whole gamut of emotions and stuff. You can't necessarily choose how you feel. If you're feeling pain, you feel pain. If you feel hurt, you're hurt. If you're feeling lost, you can feel what you feel. You don't necessarily have control over that. But what you and I can decide when we do feel that is how we're going to act. We can choose where we're going to put our focus and what we're going to do in response to the feelings. And one thing we can decide in the midst of the pain is what we're going to focus on. We can focus on what is missing or we can focus on what we have. God's goodness of the pain of a fallen world that we're living in. The Bible has lots of verses that, that say don't grumble because grumbling is an, is an action. I have a couple in there in your life notes. I have the references. 1 Peter 4.9, for example, it says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Philippians 2.14 says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing or complaining. James 5.9 says, Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. You see, grumbling is an action. There's no command re regarding saying, don't feel sad, don't feel hurt, don't feel down, don't feel pain. So what should we do instead of grumbling? Well, I read it at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the service. A good, good thing is to look at Psalm 100, verse 4, where it says, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. I will enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name in all things. Remember Job. Even when I'm in pain, I can enter in and I can choose to focus on those couple of drops 
and enter his courts with thanksgiving and give praise to him. Or I can enter in and say, how much, how much, how come there's so much air in here, God? Why didn't you fill my cup to overflowing like you, like you did David? And we're going to talk next week about comparing yourself to other people. It's all in our choice. We choose. Some of us see a lot of air. Some of us see the water. Some of us in the middle. But we choose what we focus on. Now, I've got six short statements here. I want to tie this all together. I'm not going to give you a lot of explanation for each one. But I've got six short statements here. I just want to go through them called Lessons from the Desert. They're kind of like breadcrumbs that I'm leaving on, on the way for you to be able to go back to this and look at this and apply it to your life uh, and, and things that, that are good to remember as you go through life. And the first is this. Negativity breeds fear. Giving thanks breeds faith. Negativity breeds fear. Giving thanks breeds faith. I can choose what I focus on. If I focus on the problem, what am I going to see? I'm going to see the problem. When I say focus on the blessing, I don't necessarily mean to ignore the problem, but if I focus on the problem and ignore the blessings and the things that I have to give thanks for, what's going to happen is I'm going to get more and more fearful. And that's what the Israelites did. You know, you're going to end up feeling like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really bad. Run. I'm on a bad run. I'm having a bad day. You know, it starts out, you know, one bad thing happens and you focus on that. And guess what? The second bad thing happens. And the next thing you know, the whole day is just going down the drain and you think, Boy, I guess the week's going to be bad. And then, you know anybody like that? You ever been like that? You need to refocus. Because when you focus on the negative, it breeds fear. When you focus on what God has done, it breeds faith. The second thing, negativity snowballs and spreads. It snowballs like that bad little thing happening in the morning, followed by another and another, and extrapolates out. And it's like the snowball gets worse and worse and worse. And negativity doesn't just infect the life of the negative person. It spreads throughout everybody else. Some of you have heard me talk about, about the pools. You can take 12 people in the pool, even if they're generally happy people, and you put one or two negative people in there and, and just talking negative, negative. I've seen it happen. Trust me, you have too. Within, the, within 15 minutes, everybody's negative. It's a human condition. Negativity snowballs and it spreads. It doesn't just infect the life of the negative person. When I read the story there in Numbers 13 and 14, you had 10 spies, you had two that were, you had two that were, that were positive, you had 10 that were negative, and then what do you have in, in Numbers 14, 1? All the people, all couple million of them. It, it's harder. It's much harder to go in the pools, you know, and everybody's being negative, and you try to be positive, you know. Next thing you know, you know, you're being told, hey, that pool over there is probably better for you. Now, Here's the third thing I want you to remember. Negativity repels. It pushes people away. Negative people go through life and they have few friends. And they wonder, well, why doesn't anybody like me? Well, who do you want to hang out with? Hey, how you doing today, Krabby? <laughs> I want you to be really honest, real and honest with me. If you're a friend, if you're Krabby, tell me that. But let's not spend all day in total negativity. And don't let it be so that every time we see one another, everything's negative, 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 negative. Tell you what, what, what happens is pretty soon it's like, oh, wait a minute, I need to go home and set my alarm clock for tomorrow. Or I need to go help Doris give her cat a bath. Anything to avoid being around the negativity. The fourth lesson, negativity is self-fulfilling. The thing about negativity is as we start to worry, this is going to happen, this is going to be bad, this, is, this isn't going to go right. Guess what? It's going to happen. And it starts on the playground. 
the little kid that's there and he's facing down the, the guy up on the pitcher's mound that looks like a giant that has the fastest swell in the, in, in the league. He's sitting there, oh, I, I can't hit. I, I'm not going to hit. I'm not going to get a base. I'm not going to Guess what? He, he's not going to hit a home run. They'll never hit a home run. And that's how life goes, even as adults. It can be self-fulfilling spiritually and it becomes self-fulfilling in other ways because what we tend to focus on tends to happen. Next, negativity short circuits God's best for us. And we saw this in a tragedy here in Numbers 13 and 14. You're right at the edge of the promised land. You're right at the edge. You've been toughened up through a year of hard times. God's provided the material possessions you need. God has his best right there in front of you. And instead, it's one more trip around the desert. Every day, yes, God's providing food and he provides you with water and his presence there. But this isn't God's best for you. This isn't God's plan for you. When we allow negativity to take over our life, we invariably end up short-circuiting God's best for us. Hopefully not to the point of turning a rough year into a miserable life, but somewhere along the line, we do that. And the last thing is where we started, and we'll end it with this. Negativity kills. It kills relationships. It kills dreams. It kills the future. And it kills our walk with God. Everywhere we go, negativity has a very high price. And that's why this teaching is titled, The High Cost of Grumbling. A much higher cost than most of us would have ever guessed. But the good news is that we can choose. We can be honest in our pain. We can feel our pain. We can tell God about it. We can tell God all the pain in our life, all about our pain. And we can choose what we focus on. The water in the glass or the air in the glass. So I ask you again today. How full is your glass? How full your glass? What are you going to focus on? Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. MIN.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!